Okay, uh, we're on uh, the second part, if you like, of chapter 5 of John, the Gospel of John. So we're looking at from verse 16 through to the end. And the title of our, our subject this afternoon is The Authority of the, of the Son and the Testimony About Him, or the Testimonies About Him. So there's two parts, but... Uh, we're, it's a, a, a real follow-on from last week because uh, we're following on from the, uh, the miracle um, that took place and at Bethesda and the reaction to it. I found that when I was just studying this and uh, preparing for the meeting today, um, it, it brought back a lot of memories that you have because the Gospels of course are just so well known to us those of us who have been to Sunday school as children and uh, had many of these stories relayed to us you, you form um, little pictures in your mind don't you uh, and they stay there and it's I think it's almost like the Lord waits until you're a bit more mature and able to appreciate some of the deeper things. And I felt that was the case, you know, when I was looking at this, just trying to meditate on the relationship between God the Father and God the Son. And I think the depth of that is just phenomenal. <laughs> uh, and for the Holy Spirit within us to reveal these things even in a, in a small way I found thrilling just to and I found myself as I was preparing this happens a lot more these days than it used to is just going into a meditation uh, instead of writing notes and and uh, preparing to what I was going to say I was just meditating on it and enjoying it and it was such a thrill again just to go into the, the depth and allow the Holy Spirit just to reveal things that I'd never considered before. So anyway, let's um, read the passage together. Um, so we'll look at John chapter 5, uh, reading from 16. So we're following on from the, the miracle of the healing and the reaction to it. So verse 16 is, So because Jesus was doing these things on the Sabbath, the Jews persecuted him. Jesus said to them, My father is always at his work to this very day, and I too am working. For this reason, the Jews tried all the harder to kill him. Not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. Jesus gave them this answer. I tell you the truth, the son can do nothing by himself. He can do only what he sees his father doing, because whatever the father does, the son also does. For the father loves the son and shows him all he does. Yes, to your amazement, he will show him even greater things than these. For just as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, even so the Son gives life to whom he pleases, or whom he is pleased to give it. 
Moreover, the Father judges no one, but has entrusted all judgment to the Son, that all may honour the Son, just as they honour the Father. He who does not honour the Son does not honour the Father who sent him. I tell you the truth, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and will not be condemned. He has crossed over from death to life. I tell you the truth, a time is coming and has now come when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who will hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son to have life in himself and he has given him authority to judge because he is the Son of Man. Do not be amazed at this, for a time is coming when all who are in their graves will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done good will rise to live, and those who have done evil will rise to be condemned. By myself, I can do nothing. I judge only as I hear, and my judgment is just, for I seek not to please myself, but him who sent me. If I testify about myself, my testimony is not valid. There is another who testifies in my favour, and I know that his testimony about me is valid. You have sent to John, and he has testified to the truth. Not that I accept human testimony, but I mention it that you may be saved. John was a lamp that burned and gave light, and you chose for a time to enjoy his light. I have testimony weightier than that of John. For the very, very work that the Father has given me to finish and which I am doing testifies that the Father has sent me. And the Father who sent me has himself testified concerning me. You have never heard his voice nor seen his form, nor does his word dwell in you, for you do not believe the one he sent. You diligently study the scriptures because you think that by them you possess eternal life. Those are the scriptures that testify about me, yet you refuse to come to me to have life. I do not accept praise from men, but I know, I know you. I know that you do not have the love of God in your hearts. I have come in my Father's name, and you do not accept me. But if someone else comes in his own name, you will accept him. How can you believe if you accept praise from one another, yet make no effort to obtain the praise that comes from the only God? But do not think I will accurse, accuse you before the Father. Your accuser is Moses, on whom your hopes are set. If you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote about me. But since you do not believe what he wrote, how are you going to believe what I say? The beginning of this section, um, I just is once again picking up on the matter of the Sabbath. As we're going through, John, we're finding this comes up as a regular subject. Um, the accusations that were brought to against the Lord Jesus about the Sabbath day and breaking, and how important the Sabbath day was to, particularly the Pharisees, to the Jews in general, and they were looking for excuses to um, accuse, attack 
persecute the Lord Jesus. And they, they honed in so many times when you read it about the Sabbath. So you find that when not, many of us are, are, are doing these talks, you find we're coming up against this time and time again. I won't spend a lot of time on it, but I just want to just mention that um, the interesting factor here is that the Lord Jesus went on to, to talk about that his Father is always working. And he said, and I'm always working too. When you think about what, what was, uh, what instituted the Sabbath rest, and it was related, of course, to the creation that in six days, God, or the Godhead, created the heavens and the earth. And then it reads that on the seventh day, God rested. And of course, the Hebrew word actually means that he stopped, he'd finished, he'd completed his work. And he stopped, and the picture is of him uh, seeing that it was good. He enjoyed his creation. He enjoyed what he's done. And of course it was perfect, because this is pre-sin. And he's looking at it and enjoying it. And of course he passed that on to mankind, that this is something that I want you to enjoy too. And so, go on to the law of Moses, and of course it was... Six days shall you work, and on the seventh day you will rest, because God rested on the seventh day. There was a purpose in that, and, and, and of course the Pharisees totally lost it, because like a lot of things the Pharisees did, they twisted it, and they got it very muddled. The purpose was for the benefit of mankind. The purpose of a rest day. The purpose was to enjoy God. It was all to do with our relationship with God, to sit down, not to be in whatever efforts or activities that we were involved in through the week that were necessary in order to live or to um, make money or to grow crops or to look after us, whatever it might be. It was a necessity for us to stop and consider God and enjoy him and enjoy his creation think about it and not to be burdened with the normal chores of things that was the purpose and it had to be forced on on because it, it's a little bit like the remembrance that if you like it it a sense in which it's, it's forced on you. But it's a good thing. Because if it wasn't, if we sort of, if God had made a, a, a ruling that, well, whenever you feel like it, just come together and we'll have a remembrance. How often would you do it? But then, also, do we really only want to be sitting down and thinking about the death of the Lord Jesus Christ, his resurrection, and our joy in what he's accomplished for us at Calvary once a week. But the fact was that it was, it was necessary to put that in, in order to promote, to consider, and as hopefully what we do with the remembrance is that we prepare for it. And you prepare for it all week, or, or we should do. <laughs> and so the thoughts that we are getting through the, the week, we are giving them to God, either as individuals in, in, in our daily enjoyment,
But on thinking about the collective worship, is thinking that is an offering that I could give him. And you're thinking about that on a regular basis. This is where God was coming from on his creation and on the Sabbath day, is that I want you to be thinking about me all the time. But I know what you're like. <laughs> and you're going to get yourself embroiled in so many other things that unless I demand that you set your day aside for me, then it will not happen. We, we do it, of course, on the first day of the week, the Lord's Day. We, we call it, which we take from Revelation 1. And because John was in the Spirit on the Lord's Day, the only time day that was ever given a name was the Sabbath, which was the seventh day. And so because this day was called the Lord's Day, we assume it wasn't the Sabbath, and therefore it was probably the first day of the week. And so therefore that's where we've come about, that the early disciples gathered together on the first day of the week, and they did that before they did anything else in the week. And that was a time set apart. It was called the Lord's Day because presumably that's what they did in the morning, first thing before they started doing anything else, was to give God his place. So I'm just thinking that that is when it talks about my father is always at work. I think the, the rest of the enjoyment of his creation, of course, was pre-sin. When sin came into the world, then we have a situation where God's always working. And so is the Lord Jesus Christ. And so is the Spirit. Because of sin. He's always working. But that doesn't mean that we didn't still adhere to the, the day set apart that should be for God. And if we have that in our minds, like a weekly remembrance, is a weekly time of giving to God. The working that's going on is again, as the Lord Jesus here is proclaiming to those that are listening, particularly to the Pharisees, my father's always working. He doesn't shut his door and put the shutters up on the Lord's day or the Sabbath and say, right, I'm not available. He is always working and he's working against sin. And that's if you like, something that we should have enjoyment from and security from is that God is always working and the sun is always working and we get the picture there of the two together working the father and ever since the sin the son working together he's been working and as he shows his miracles and uh, the evidence of the working of Christ was seen in his actions people were seeing that in Christ that he was working because he was making people well he was teaching he was active and so therefore that work was evidenced and he's saying the father's always working and so is the son and the two are linked and we're working together and we'll talk about that a bit more and together we go forward and what I do is exactly what he does and what I do is in line with him we are one we are together and we work together for the benefit of mankind 
In um, we go on to verse nineteen, and it says at the beginning of verse nineteen, it says, "I tell you the truth." When you get to verse um, twenty-four, it says, "I tell you the truth," and then twenty-five, "I tell you the truth." I think in some of the older versions, you get the verily, verily. It used to be a uh, uh, when I was younger, I used to sort of smile at that. Verily, <laughs> verily, what, what does that mean? <laughs> uh, it really means amen, amen, which uh, again is something that we, we tend to use at the end. Uh, uh, so, uh, so let it be, or uh, I agree, or I pronounce, I accept together. So when you're, when you're saying amen at a prayer, you are in total agreement with the person who has spoken and you say your amens because you associate with what's been said and that you're uh, joining in that, that prayer. When the Lord here does it, he's doing it at the beginning. And what he's saying is it's almost a bit like, like stop. It's not that anything else he had said wasn't important, but it's almost putting an importance on this particular Thing. What I'm about to say now is of deep importance, so please listen. And so I tell you the truth. The Lord never spoke anything else but the truth, but it's just a, it's a emphasizing and focusing on it and saying, you know, if you're fiddling with something, stop, listen. And he says it there three times. It's really important and it's talking. Uh, about his relationship. The son can do nothing by himself. He can only do what he sees his father doing. Because whatever the father does, the son does. It's a lovely picture of that, of the unity. This is just the beginning of it. And he's, he's expressing this unity to a people who've never thought of this before. They've always thought of this God as being one one person and he's being introduced he's introducing them to the fact that there's a triune God and maybe particularly here let's just look at the, the father-son relationship because the father has sent the son I am the expressed image of God the father I am working exactly as what he has asked me to do I am doing everything according to his will and in his desire and, and his his function and all that he's asked me to do, I'm doing it with him. I don't do anything on my own. I don't think for myself. It's a picture of a unity that is harder for us to come to terms with. We talk about unity and it's a, a very important subject for those of us in Churches of God. Because when we talk about a united elderhood, that is very important to us. And we believe that that is taught so clearly in Scripture about the unity, the oneness of a group of people who are seeking to please God. That if we are one mind and in seeking only to be in the mind of God, then we can go forward as one. And even though there's discussions and disputes and such like, we're looking for submission, and to the end result is oneness going forward in agreement. It's a shadow <laughs> of the relationship with God the Father and God the Son, because that's perfect. 
and that we're being introduced to it here in this chapter and saying that anything that the Son does is totally in line with the Father. So when the Son is breaking the Sabbath, <coughs> what he's trying to explain here is that I am Lord of the Sabbath, where you read about it in Luke, Luke chapter 6. I am Lord of the Sabbath. And what he's talking about is something, if you just <coughs> consider it, that the rest and the peace of God is, is seen in the person of Christ. And, and you think, well, how does that work? Is that he is here as a man. He's here, and you consider him as a man, and every step that he took was in perfection, unity with his Father. That coming together, that dealings with man was from now and on the future. And so looking at the man, Christ Jesus, and his actions, looking at his miracles, looking at why he chose certain people, why he said certain things, the way he was going towards the cross in his three years of ministry, it was all totally in line with the Father's will. And so when we think about the love of Christ in going to the cross, we can't, we cannot dismiss the love of God in that. Because that's an expression. The Son is expressing as a man the love of God. Because it's a, the love are just knit, they're, they're knit together. And they're coming. And so everything he says and everything he does is just that lovely unity of the two. I can't do anything without my father. I learn from my father. I watch what he does and I do the same. The only thing I can think about it was when I get these little um, videos from Ross and Sarah about little Reuben and the way he's interacting with Ross. And we'd one the other day there where he was crying his eyes out looking out the window because Ross was cutting the grass without him. <laughs> and uh, I, I mean, it's a very sad, <laughs> maybe, comparison, but it's just the idea of the son just wanting to be with the father and learn, watching everything he does and thinking about everything he does and learning and wanting to be part of that and you see the perfection of unity, the perfect unity in that coming together. The, the action that the Lord Jesus is saying, and this is what he's putting across of course, is he's encouraging those to look at me and look at my action and to believe that I am the Son. And therefore, if you want to know about God, you need to look at me, because I am the, um, the human picture of God. I am the Son of Man, and I've come here from God, and this is what he's, he's encouraging them to look at. He's also um, looking at the fact that there was no independence I think, you know, it, it, it's sometimes kind of hard for us to, get, to think about that, that the Lord 
would have been making uh, decisions every day, like where to lay his head and where to buy food and all the practical things like that. But in fact, there was no independence. That everything he did was totally in union and in association. There was no secrets kept from either. When we try to, you know, follow the Lord Jesus in our lives, sometimes it's easy for us to sort of almost dismiss that and say, well, that, that was Christ, of course. Um, you can't expect me to get up to that standard. We can't expect me to live a life like that. What we are expected to do and what we are expected, and this is where the Lord again is teaching us here, is that we need to believe him. So what he says is absolute truth. So we are taking it on board, we are believing it, and then we are acting on it. And it's total. It's not just a, well, that part of the life is separate from God and uh, I don't include God in that area. Jesus never did that. And we shouldn't is to be thinking that we, there are certain parts of our life that doesn't involve God. There are certain parts of our life where I'm not following Christ because it's a sort of worldly thing. It's a worldly activity or it's a worldly thought. Or, that is not what we are being asked to do, to follow and to be trying to be in, in unity with Christ, in unity with God and his will. His position of power, he goes on to talk about the resurrection and the physical resurrection and the spiritual resurrection. And this is where he comes into the bit where he's saying, you're going to see things greater than you've just seen. What they had just seen was obviously a man who had been lame for 38 years and had been raised up and was able to walk. That was amazing. And people would have seen that and thought, you know, I would know this man and he's been there for, he's been lame for so long and look at him. That is absolutely amazing. God's saying, now, you're going to see far greater than this. This is just <laughs> one expression. You've had John um, and he has been a light to the way and you followed him. But he, the Lord was actually saying, actually, that John was the best of men. <laughs> that was the best men could actually uh, come up with. <laughs> and the imperfections of John um, were there for all to see. But he was shining a light towards Christ. And so there was a greater than John coming. John recognised that. He must increase, I must decrease. So he knew that. And he was saying, Jesus was saying to them, this is different. What, I don't need the testimony of men because I'm working the works of my Father. You can see it. You can see my miracles. You can listen to what I'm saying. And I am giving you life. And then, and to 
top that, if you like, if that's possible, is that I have the testimony of my father. And of course, I think David referred to it last week, was of course with the baptism of the Lord Jesus, when this voice came from heaven, this is my beloved son, in whom I am well pleased. It's a testimony of the Father in heaven. And you think, you know, that put together, these three things, John, the greatest prophet, the actions that you see and hear of the Lord Jesus Christ, and the testimony from heaven, which incidentally was also seen, as it mentioned later, in the Old Testament, because the Old Testament prophesied about Christ. In verse 24, it starts, as I mentioned, I tell you the truth. And it's something, again, that he's saying, I want to focus here on something that's very important. And what was he saying in verse 24? That it was almost as if, well, you might only be half listening to me now. I want you to totally listen to me now. Switched on, listen, write it down, whatever. (laughs) Verily, verily. Amen, amen. This is what I'm saying to you. Tell you the truth. Whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and will not be condemned. And then verse 25, he said it again, I tell you the truth, a time is coming and is now come when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God. So these two things were put together. And what he was saying is that you need to believe him. Not to believe in him. Some of the older versions, I think it's the authorised version, has believe in him. And of course, the difficulty with that is it's the end's not really there. And it shouldn't be there. Because it's, lots of people believe in Jesus Christ. Lots of people believe that he existed. I mean, the Muslims do. They all believe in Jesus Christ. But that does not save that is not where you're going to sort of um, give you salvation. You have to believe him. And you have to believe in his word. You have to listen to what he has said in his word, which is alive. You believe Christ, not in Christ, not as a historical figure, or he was a good man, or all the stories about him. But you believe him. And that is what gives eternal life. That is what is worth. Uh, The word believed is respecting the Son. And salvation must be the effect of believing Christ. Salvation is the effect of the word. You cannot be saved without the word. Again, it's, it, I just, it struck me more forcibly, I think, when I've been reading this than I've, at any time before, that um, we, you hear stories about people being affected by a, a story of somebody else getting saved or a story of uh, the good works of Christ and how uh, he, a good man he was. What it's saying here is it's the word. It's believing Christ believing his word 
that saves. And that's so important that it seems almost to be put it in simple terms. You can't get saved without the Word of God. <laughs> because the Word of God is Christ. And you have to believe Christ. And therefore, just don't just be believing a story of a good works of a good man that might be worth following. And there's plenty of good men and women around that you can read books about who did great things and you admire them. And Jesus Christ is way above that. He does not come into that category. He is life eternal himself. So, going on to the resurrection, and I just want to look at a couple of verses. Uh, uh, Romans chapter 6, and we're looking now about the, the greater things that the Lord is talking about that will happen. And he's talking about uh, spiritual and physical resurrection. So we're in Romans chapter 6 and verse 5. I'll just read it to you if I find it. <clears throat> if we have been united with him like this in his death, this is his crucifixion, we will certainly also be united with him in his resurrection. And in verse 6 goes on to say, For we know that our old self was crucified with him, so that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin. And then just on the next or chapter 8 and verse 11. And if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who lives in you. Will give life to your mortal bodies. I don't know whether you've really given a lot of thought to that. You know, if you go, and, you go to funerals and uh, you, you see people, be, the bodies being put into the ground and it's the body is dead and the body if it's left there long enough will return to dust we believe the person the soul of the person has gone to be with the Lord but what we've just read is that there is an eternal life for the body as well the body dies but the body will be raised again and so that is different from the those who are not being uh, had new life in the body. The body will meet with the spirit when the Lord comes back to the air. The body will rise again. And it's, it's an amazing thing that what we read about is something that we, we find so hard to physically understand. But there is a sense of the physical resurrection. The Lord... Um, did that, of course, and Lazarus was a, was a case in point. The Lord Jesus himself, his body was raised from the dead. And it was his physical body. His body was alive. But that was unique. With, with uh, Lazarus, of course, we believed he would have died again. <laughs> uh, but it was, it was pointing, I believe, to the resurrection of the body. The body is, a, 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 is important. 
in, the, in respect that it will die, but it will rise again. The spirit will never die. The soul will never die. And that is where the, uh, I think the Lord here is, is showing this in, in um, verses lost it now. Sorry, I'll come back to you. tell you the truth, whoever hears my word and believes him who has sent me has eternal life and will not be condemned. He has crossed over from death to life. And then the second part, when the dead hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. I think there's a, there's a dead, the fact that the picture of people being dead to Christ and hearing the voice and being saved. There's also the, the thought of the Lord Jesus Christ coming to the air and he shouts and the dead in Christ rise. As if the dead hear, the dead people will hear, the bodies will rise. There's a sense in that where they are alive forevermore because of the promises of God. And that is a testament to the atoning work of Christ and the power of the resurrection. So whilst it's a remarkable thing to think about the dead in Christ rising and the bodies and how are they all going to be, how is all that dust <laughs> going to rise up, that is something that's known to God and it's, it's the power of God uh, it's been evidence there that whilst people die in many different ways and their bodies can be in many different places, uh, ending up in <coughs> dust that's all over the world, God knows because he created that body and he knows where everything is. And that is living. That body is known to God. And whilst it's physically dead, and as much as it's functioning on earth, it's got a life for the future. It's got a future. Whatever that might be, it's going to be transformed. But it's going to be transformed from whatever, what we have at the moment. I think the, the, uh, the life in the spirit is again something that when we're talking about greater things, is that is not seen in the same way that we accept that by faith that in death the spirit goes to God and uh, those who hear the voice of God will live and that is something that's now been handed over to the son and again we come back to that unity of the lovely thing that God the father has handed that to the son as the son of man and saying it's, it's his choice. But yet again, this picture of the unity, that although he's saying to the son, this is your choice, you can choose. You choose who you want. It's totally in line with the father. And there's no conflict there. And it's just a, 
an evidence again of the, the responsibility that is being is being wrought by the two <laughs> between the father and the son. And although it's, he's handed it over to the son, it's because the son is a son of man who is now evidencing this in the world. And he's, the, the father is just saying, look, I'm giving this responsibility to him. But in a way, it's, it's still mine as well, because I'm totally in unity with, in unity with each other. So, just in winding it up, just uh, at the end of um, that, the section where um, he talks about the resentment that there is from those who disbelieve and going on to talk about the, the, the Pentateuch, the, the, the five books of Moses, which he makes a comment that Moses wrote about him. I think, you know, when we talk about Genesis and the, the amazing difficulties of trying to understand Genesis and God's hand, and of course, uh, going, going through his dealings with the people of Israel, it seems to be almost summed up there by the Lord, is that you believe Moses, you want to follow Moses, he's a great man that you want to follow, he's only a man, but actually what he wrote was all about me. And I think that was the trouble that the people, the Pharisees particularly, they did not see Christ in the Pentateuch. And yet the Lord was saying to them, look, if you want to follow Moses, if you want to believe in Moses, you believe in me because Moses wrote about me. And so therefore, testifying to his authorship and its authority and its divine inspiration is there that the Lord is saying it's all about me so I'll leave that with you just uh, there's a lot of things that I could go into a lot more uh, and it's it's something that hopefully you can maybe take away read for yourself and get your own meditations and thoughts from it but it's a lovely passage one I certainly commend that we should read more often <laughs>